Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. We want to lead off this morning with our ardent prayers for the President and First Lady of the United States, who both tested positive for the coronavirus. They are now in quarantine at the White House. They are both asymptomatic. Uh, Many uh, reports that they're feeling fine. All travel has been canceled. Obviously, all campaign-related events beyond the confines of the quarantine, which will mean they will have a schedule of remote events, which we have all become quite familiar with um, in this COVID-19 era. It is 32 days until the election, uh, the presidential election. And so let us be praying for the president as we do every day. Um, There have been lots of people who have responded with well wishes and prayers, but predictably there have also been those who have responded with mocking and scolding um, and wishes other than well. And that is an indication, that is always a good indication of where someone's heart is. I mean, regardless of the person who is sick or ill or suffering, our response as Christians is always the same. And that is um, for healing. That is a, a compassion, a coming alongside, a walking with. And so how you and others respond today how you observe others responding today to the news that the president and first lady and Hope Hicks, who uh, is a spokesperson for the president, um, possibly others in the administration. We don't know yet, right? We don't know the full scope of it yet. Lots of these folks traveled together on Air Force One, have been in close proximity with one another. For those of you who are in Minnesota, uh, it was on the flight home from a campaign stop in Minnesota that Hope Hicks began not feeling great and was isolated from other passengers. And so uh, we certainly have to assume that she was presenting um, at those campaign events in Minnesota. So just, just, we need to be praying and we need to be recognizing that the virus continues to spread and it is a dispassionate about party. It's, uh, It's not particularly interested in who it attacks, it's just looking for anybody. And so uh, in that way, um, let's just be mindful not only of our own health, but the health of others and consider it in the way that we um, move around in the world today. To this point, others in the administration have tested negative, including the Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for those of you who like to know about uh, succession conversations, but I think uh, those conversations obviously be premature at this point, but they are um, always of interest to people. So we are going to um, be praying today, and so let's just lead off with that. Father God, you encourage, even demand of us that we pray for those who are in authority over us, and here in the United States of America, there is no person in a position of greater authority than that of the President of the United States, and so we present him before you today. Uh, The child you know as Donald J. Trump, 
You are the one who knit him together in his mother's womb. He is fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are the great physician. And you're able to do right now um, far more than we ordinarily dare to ask or even imagine. And so we would ask for a full restoration of his health, bodily health. And we would ask, Father, that you would use this experience as a, a way of drawing him unto yourself in unusual ways. We echo these same prayers for our First Lady, Melania Trump. We ask that as our sister in Christ, you would, um, you would make yourself known to her in ways that are very personal today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, have her experience you today in, um, in ways that would be a mystery to those who do not know you. Tend to them, we pray. Uh, tend to their son, for whom I'm sure this is a frightening experience, and to those surrounding the president who have um, obviously not only gr- great hopes for today, but great hopes for tomorrow as well for his continued leadership. So, Father, we make these prayers to you. We add to them the thousands of others who learned yesterday that they have the coronavirus. And, Father, um, the families of all of those who uh, who have lost members of their families to this a particular pandemic. These we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be right back with Matt Hawkins. He and I are going to take up the topic of abortion. What is the future of Roe v. Wade and what would it look like in this country after Roe v. Wade? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at Matthew T. Hawkins. You can also find him at M.T. Hawk. We like to talk about the intersection of faith and politics, particularly on life issues and religious liberty. Matt, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So um, would you like to... Yeah, what a week. What a week. What a a day. What a moment. When I chose... When I chose my walk-on music last year, I had no idea it would be so appropriate for all of 2020, which, uh, those of you who don't catch the reference, the my walk-on music is a jazz classic called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The world is, uh, yeah, there's like the world on fire, burning down the house. We got all kinds of appropriate walk-on music this year. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Sorry. Um, okay. Let's talk about um, this Axios HBO effort to describe yeah. reality uh, if and when the Supreme Court of the United States would overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and so it was sort of with the acknowledgement that the Supreme Court certainly could overturn Roe v. Wade in the next handful of yep. years. What then? Great question, Carmen. And what what the most we can talk about that. The most interesting thing to me about this moment is that amidst like um, certain cultural and political debates over like particular issues, there are moments in those debates where you feel momentum shift in a way that prior to that moment, uh, things had been pretty much in a stalemate. I think I, we might be looking at a moment where um, where momentum is shifting on here. Why do I say that? When you have 
an out, a media outlet uh, like Axios on HBO, um, which is not, I wouldn't say it's mainstream, but it's certainly prominent and it's not, um, uh, it's not a right word, you know, pro-life uh, media outlet, right? Uh, this is not Fox News. Um, you have that, dedic- that kind of uh, media outlet dedicate um, reporting to this moment uh, and looking past Roe v. Wade. That coupled with the fact that um, abortion rights activists are talking about it and strategizing about life after Roe v. Wade. That's a shift, I think. Um, The fact that they're talking about it, um, uh, on the one hand, you could read it as um, trying to generate some grassroots support uh, to, to press senators to not confirm Amy Coney Barrett. Um, but I think there's a sense that that's while drama will certainly ensue, uh, and we don't know exactly when the vote on Amy Coney Barrett will happen, this is probably a done deal. And so I think there, I, I feel like there's a, having been part of the pro-life movement for a long time, uh, a couple decades now, um, there, the, the ground may be shifting here uh, a little bit. Um, I've said before that I thought uh, prior to um, uh, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, when we had the court at five to four with Justice Roberts um, as chief justice, I, I was speculated that it would be very, very unlikely that they would overturn Roe v. Wade in a 180 degree kind of way. What we tend to see from the Roberts court is kind of pretty nuanced and narrow decisions that that do change things, but they don't change things um, in, a, in a sea change kind of way. Um, I, and so I, I think you would might, likely see kind of a series of rulings that started to chip away at Roe v. Wade's prominence. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, if, if there's, you know, someone like Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed and you basically have six theoretically conservative justices on the court, um, uh, even, even without Roberts, you'd have a five to four, um, vote. Um, so all it's to say, I, think the fact that we're having these conversations and that outlets like Axios um, and then, uh, you know, are reporting on it and having those conversations and that uh, outlets or organizations like Center for Reproductive Rights, you know, they have a big web page now that it's it's very helpful to even pro-lifers to understand uh, what was going to happen, legally speaking, after a row uh, if, if Roe v. Wade is overturned either all at once or in pieces. And the fact is uh, that the U.S. becomes a patchwork quilt of um, of different abortion-related legal situations. Um, and so you have about, you know, 20 so states where uh, if life would basically, legal life would basically revert to pre-Roe status. Um, and you have other states uh, which means you're going to have some states that are very friendly to abortion, other states are not. Um, and what you've had in, in the past few years are uh, some states kind of preemptively pass some laws that are basically operational if Roe v. Wade uh, gets undone. So there's a, in Alabama, they have uh, they make abortion a class A felony. Um, and you could get 10 to as many as 99 years uh, as an abortion doctor for committing an abortion. Um, that's uh, probably an outlier as far as the, uh, the uh, degree of punishment for uh, performing an abortion 
um, in a state. Um, and then other states like, um, you know, the West Coast, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, uh, New York, then on the East, New York State, um, those kind of places are going to be very, uh, very liberal on, on abortion uh, policy. And so and then a bunch of other states are going to be in between um, where so it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to be an interesting few years. So Roe v. Wade, uh, folks need to understand overturning that uh, doesn't doesn't provide a solution. It's part of the solution, nationally speaking, uh, but it only provides part of it. I think we've arrived at the point, um, Matt, where we now think, I mean, we're generations into the widespread practice of abortion as birth control here in the United States. I think we've arrived at the place where for most people, um, it's normal. And at some point, at some point, the wake-up call is going to come, and everyone is going to recognize that in the same way that sacrificing babies on a mountain in a fiery pit is not normal, yeah. um, sacrificing the next generation um, of Americans via uh, saline injections in the womb, I mean, just on and on, the, the, the horrific and grievous ways that we have come up with to exterminate the, the, the children yeah. who would be... Um, it, At some point, that wake-up call is going to come, and I think that part of the challenge the church is going to face is dealing with the post-traumatic stress that a generation, uh, two generations now, of women are going to present with. Like, uh, when the wake-up call comes, um, the trauma, the reality of the trauma, the the moral culpability of having participated in uh, the sacrifice of your own child, like, that's going to come. Right. And and I think that, that for the church, there's a, a preparation that's necessary for honestly engaging in that. We are not saying that there is any sin from which you cannot be forgiven, but we're also acknowledging that the taking of another human life is sin. And we are absolutely acknowledging that uh, God is the one who knits a child together in a mother's womb, and it's it's a life that he gives, and it's a life that only he Uh, has the authority to take away. And when we usurp God's authority in that, we have sinned. Um, And so not just against another person, but against God himself. There's a a reckoning of of heart and mind coming. And so when I hear the question, what what after, you know, what happens after Roe v. Wade, um, once it's not legal everywhere, people begin to ask themselves, is it is it still moral? It was obviously I thought it was yeah. moral because it was legal. And there's going right. to be this this moment where people then begin to acknowledge, oh, you know what? It's no longer legal. Maybe it was never moral. And if it was never moral um, and I did it or I paid for it or I demanded that someone else uh, have one. I mean, I'm, I don't know. The list is long here of those who are going to find yeah, themselves culpable right. for it. So anyway, you and I have to take a very brief break. Um, when we come back, let's um, let's talk about the Christian voter quandary. Uh, that is presenting mm-hmm. itself here in 2020. All right, that's up next with Matt Hawkins. We'll be right back. Paul, that's a fun. Uh, that's a fun song. Uh, that's an older one. The break. Yeah, I Brian like Baird, Jimmy got saved. I like it. I like it. All right, continuing my conversation with Matt <laughs> Hawkins. You can find him. On Twitter at MT Hawk or online at MatthewTHawkins.com. Check out his Crossing Fades podcast there. Um, 
Matt, talk about talk with us about uh, Christian voters and the quandary uh, yeah. being faced in 2020. So obviously, it's polling season and election season, and so everybody's looking at, uh, at election polling and figuring out what people are going to do and vote. And uh, Lifeway Research has some uh, interesting polling out. Um, unsurprisingly, those who identify as evangelical uh, are, and, are, and who are ethnically w- identify as ethnically white, uh, about 73% of them plan to vote for Donald Trump, uh, and exhibiting yet another divide within the church. Uh, our African-American brothers and sisters poll at about 69% for Biden. Uh, so you have ethnic splits um, once again, uh, heading into our national election. Um, and this is not the only issue over which uh, Christians are divided, but it's one of them. Um, and so in thinking about this particular election, um, you know, I've my, my observation and my concern is that um, this is maybe the first time I've been around part of an election where even more so than 2016, um, I think 2020 is unique because um, Christians are going to disagree among each other about what their vote means they're not sufficiently for. Um, let me let me back up and kind of restate that. Uh, we basically have uh, voting in the presidential election three options. You have uh, if if a voter is going to vote for Trump, then they for whatever reason. Um, they might be accused of not sufficiently prioritizing human dignity of, of minority brothers and sisters, uh, immigrants, refugees, um, African-Americans, Hispanics. On the other hand, if you vote Biden, then a voter might be likely accused of not sufficiently prioritizing human dignity on behalf of the unborn. And if that those two options weren't uh, weren't bad enough, um, if a person decides, you know what, because of those two quandaries or that, that quandary and, and those two um, difficult options, if I abstain from that race or cast a ballot for a third party candidate, then you might be accused of fatalism uh, or or not caring for, sufficiently for either uh, human dignity in the context of, um, uh, of the ethnic space um, or uh, or the unborn. And so we can get real accusatory of each other here. And I think this, I mean, you know, I'm rel- I'm, you know, I'm limited in my election experience in America. Um, I'm a Gen X kind of guy, but, uh, this feels like new territory, uh, for the church and, and different in a way, even from 2016. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on that? Uh, cause I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, however we vote, um, however we, and, and, People have good reasons for justifying um, their decision on either side, um, but I don't feel like either side. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're arguing uh, to vote for a vote for Trump or arguing for a vote for Biden, I think people have ra- rational, credible um, reasons for each of those. But I don't know how you weigh them against each other necessarily um, in a way that is, you know, convincing to people on the other side. And, I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't either. I, I would say, Matt, that right now, the energy that um, Christians who are concerned about the trajectory of the country, the energy, maybe rightly used in the next thirty-two days, is in respect to those who either are planning not to vote 
or um, have not yet decided how they're going to vote. I mean, the persuadable voters are really the only people, in my view, at this point, um, worthy of of energy expended to seek to convince. Because I think people who are already convinced that they're going to vote one way or the other, that's just energy misspent. You know, that's yeah. just futile, that's just futile arguing, yeah, yeah. Uh, at least in at least right. in my experience. I mean, that's just, you know, my, yeah, yeah. you know, God can move however he wants. And I certainly hope that he does. I don't pretend to know which direction that might mean he moves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and, and I and think that they, there are right, those on exactly. both sides who are convinced that, you know, God must move in the direction that they're, you know, that, that they see as right and righteous. And that's part of the challenge. Um, we are yeah. we are sometimes not seeking whatever it is that God might be doing, even if it is through an individual, a process, or um, a party that we loathe. Like, we just don't, you know, I I don't think that we have um, a big enough perspective, a broad enough perspective. We fail to keep, um, you know, all of redemptive history in view. We only see four years at a time or, uh, you know, or even time periods shorter than that. Yeah. All right, you yeah, got, think, we have to leave it there. I know Paul's, okay. Paul is right. uh, hitting the break button. So, all right, uh, we, we get to pick this up every week. So thank you again so much um, for the ongoing conversation, stimulating our thoughts, helping us think uh, in ways that we haven't necessarily uh, taken the time to think before. So that's Matthew Hawkins. Check out what he's doing at MatthewTHawkins.com, including his podcast, Crossing Fades. We'll be right back. All right. Uh, I want to talk about reason and what is reasonable or unreasonable. Sometimes we're accused of being unreasonable if we're people of faith. Uh, We get asked questions about things in Scripture that are difficult to reconcile, or maybe they can't be reconciled. Maybe they are genuine paradoxes in Scripture. And only from the perspective of faith can you even begin to understand them. But there are things that then then continue to be sort of just beyond our ability to understand. So... Dan DeWitt is up next. He and I are going to talk about surrendered reason is not unreasonable. We're going to talk about what do we do when we encounter truth that we simply cannot comprehend or when truth is intention and there seems to be a paradox. What do we do and how do we um, stand in the place of faith when others accuse us of being unreasonable? That conversation up next with Dan DeWitt. Think about the latest conversation you've had with your kids. What did you talk about? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If the average mom and dad were to catalog the conversations they had with their teen, it would be surprising how the talks are both infrequent and of little substance. I know you're probably thinking, but Mark, I can't get two words out of my kid. I'm doing the best I can. I know you are. How about setting aside a regular time each week to talk about the deeper issues of life? There doesn't have to be any talk about chores or grades or cleaning up his room. Just ask open-ended questions. You might be surprised how much the frequency and quality of your conversation improves. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. All right, so I'm going 
going to talk with Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University about something he has posted at theolatte.com entitled Surrendered Reason is, is Not, Isn't Unreasonable. Dan, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So um, we, uh, I want to ask you a big wide open question in a minute about worldview, um, but I want to start with um, this conversation about reason and then what do we do when we encounter truth that, that we can't comprehend or truth that's in tension with truth, um, a paradox that we either just have to hold in tension or we have to we have to say, okay, even though it does not seem reasonable to me, I am going to trust that this is true. Yeah, I mean, so we encounter truths all the time that are difficult to grasp or to reconcile with other things we know to be true. I'm still rattled by the news, you know, in recent history that Subway's bread has too much sugar to be bread. You know, that's just sometimes <laughs> things just rattle our cage. Um <laughs> But as it relates to the Christian faith, it's funny how, on the one hand, skeptics will say, oh, you Christians kind of have this arrogant posture, you know everything because God told you, um, and it just settles everything. But on the other hand, sometimes they'll criticize doctrines that are very complex and mysterious. Um, and so, indeed, there are things that are clear. I mean, Moses records this in Deuteronomy, where he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the hidden things belong to God, that there are certain things um, that are a part of what's described as the hiddenness of God, certain things that we can't fully conceive. God has not even revealed to us aspects of his character. We, we have what we need for life and godliness, but that doesn't mean we know everything about God. But not only are there things that God hasn't disclosed— the hidden things of God. I think that there are certain truths that God has disclosed, but not disclosed how they work together. And so when you come to topics like God's sovereignty and human responsibility, both are presented as true, but the apostles never apologize. That's difficult to reconcile those things. The biblical authors never seem kind of embarrassed of this fact. They're both true. God's revealed it to us. So we accept them as true, um, but we can't always make them work together. And that could be a real point of tension for Christians. And my advice, in short, is sometimes you just have to live with the tension and trust God with these things that are true. If Even if we can't logically reconcile them, we have good reason to trust Him, and that's what we should do. When we're, when we're able to hold um, two things in tension, where there is— genuine dissonance, right? So I think that people mm -hmm. who study music, they might be able to understand this, right? So there are, um, there's music that we enjoy because it is, the the harmony is beautiful. There's no discord, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's all working together. But dissonance is actually something that's used in music all the time, in music composition. Mm -hmm. And today, there's an unusual degree of, uh, of dissonance in in not only um, orchestral music, uh, but choral music. Like, it's not all—it um, doesn't all just work smoothly together. And there's a reason for that. Um, and periods of history, I think, 
experience uh, discordant music or art that seems out of form with itself. Um, and some of that is reflective of the angst that we have in, in society and culture, but some of it's just representative of the fact that everything is not in perfect harmony right now. Yeah. Um, and it's, even when it comes to our faith, sometimes we would assume we live in this messy world that we could at least, you know, have everything resolved in our belief system. And we're reminded that there are really complex things um, that we can't always fully understand, and that's all right. And when it comes to God, there's nothing we could compare him to. You know, so much mm-hmm. of our learning, we we begin with a reference point. You know, what's something like this? I could compare it. Well, with God, what can you compare him to? To whom can you compare God? Um, so there's only one. And so that makes it difficult to understand things like the Trinity, that God is one and God exists eternally as three persons, and each person is fully God, and there's one God. Well, just because we can outline it doesn't mean we understand it, and just because we don't understand it fully doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust God. And that's, you know, I love how R.C. Sproul describes it, that faith is well-reasoned trust, that God, we have good reason to trust God, and just like you would with a person— when they say, now trust me, some of this might not make sense, but just trust me, um, that there are times with God that we we trust him, and there's a beauty, like you're even talking about with this music, there could be this great beauty in worshiping a God that we can know true things about him, but will never exhaust the knowledge of God. So uh, in in the life of my dogs, I am godlike. Amen. I mean, they that's the way they experience it. And I'm a good, I am a good uh, benevolent God in their life. Um, and recently, we so we have two puppies. They're now six months old. But um, uh, and we have an old dog who's ten. And, uh, and the puppies recently, I mean, earlier this summer, had their first experience down at the river behind our house. And they went to the water's edge, but they were very suspect. It looked it looked scary out there. It was a totally unique experience, unlike anything they'd ever seen. Um, I waded out into the water and invited them in, right? Well, they, that is not going there. That does not, that's not firm. I put my foot out there. It sinks. It's a little bit, it's moving. I don't, it just feels funny. I mean, you can uh-huh. see them. They are nervous. They don't trust that, um, uh, but, but ultimately they trust me, right? It did not yeah. seem reasonable to jump in that water. Um, but now they love it. Now they love it, and they go out there totally on their own, right? And they know they can get in and they can get out. Well, uh, a couple of a couple of weeks ago, we had a really, really hard rain over the course of a couple of days. The the river not only rose, but it, it's moving really, really rapidly. It's way too deep for them, moving swiftly. And, um, you know, they don't know any better, so they jumped right in. And there they go, like down the river. And so my husband yeah. run, runs in after them and, you know, rescues them from, you know, their— <laughs> Their poor decision. Um, And so I do think that when we talk about reason and we talk about faith, there are experiences we have in our own life of of experiences where you put your faith in, let's say, a parent who it coaxes you off the edge of the pool the first time to jump in. And then you learn to swim and you realize that not only was the parent trustworthy, not only is God trustworthy, but you do grow in your ability to actually function in an environment that at once you found completely foreign and faith is like that. We learn, um, we learn to walk by faith by walking by faith. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, and again, this is, yeah, I love what Tim Keller said years ago in speaking at the Google headquarters um, for their uh, Google Authors event. And he was trying to describe what a path from skepticism, a lack of belief in God, to faith in God could look like. And he gave the example of a three-rung ladder. The first rung was a recognition that atheism requires at least as much faith as Christianity. Um, the second rung of that ladder, and he demonstrated that with atheists who recognize that atheism is itself a faith commitment. The second rung of the ladder was to recognize that atheism actually requires more faith than Christianity because it explains less of the human experience. The third rung of the ladder, though, Tim Keller says reason can only take you up the first two rungs. The third rung of the ladder is that faith requires a commitment. And at some point, you have to commit. Reason can take you so far, but there's a point that you have to make a personal commitment to God. And indeed, that's the case. The picture in the Bible is that we commit to someone we have good reason to trust. And as we trust him, we learn to live better in this world. It doesn't make it easy. And what we can't do is take the tension points in Scripture and just remove one of the points that we don't like to make their, to resolve the tension. No, God's trustworthy. He's revealed things about himself. And even when we can't intellectually reconcile them, he's still worthy of our trust. If you want to read more about faith being a well-reasoned trust, check out Dan DeWitt's piece called Surrendered Reason Isn't Unreasonable. It's at theolatte.com. He and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can find what we're talking about today at theolatte.com. I'm expecting him to post the Weekend Worldview Reader a little later today so that we'll all uh, have some substantive things to read and think about over the weekend. Dan, I wanted to ask you just a wide open worldview question here today. Yeah. Um, so here's so here's my question, um, and it rises out of the conversation happening in the culture about um, how the nominee to the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, um, how her faith influences her vocationally, how her faith influences the decisions that she might render as a judge. Um, but I think the question is relevant to all of us, um, and it's a question about living out our religious convictions in every area of life, um, because I think that when we talk about worldview, sometimes people imagine that it's just about a set of beliefs that we, you know, could check off a list. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe checking off the Apostles' Creed. Um, you know, yes, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Um, yes, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, yes, I believe, you know, that the church is the, I mean, whatever the list is of I believes, but do I live as if those are true or am I functionally living as an atheist? I think this is the worldview conversation we as Christians need to be able to have as the world is having the conversation about whether or not a person of convictional faith could serve in a particular role. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's the assumption can be from a someone who's at least trying to be secular in their outlook, or at least in their conversation, that they're trying to talk about things in kind of a religiously neutral way and say, you know, this candidate has a particular faith, that there could be concerns that'll be expressed in various ways. Um, the reality is all of us are functioning from some kind of faith commitment, and all of us fail to live out those values consistently. And so 
for Christians, our concern is not necessarily, although it is important that every way of seeing the world is established on a faith commitment, for Christians, our concern is more personal. Um, how are we living? And as Francis Schaeffer said years ago, the our final apologetic is our lifestyle. And that's such a sobering reminder because none of us perfectly lives out our faith. And we have to recognize that the way we live is a part of our worldview. It's the practical expression of our worldview, and it's the most accessible part of our worldview to the outside world. Um, they aren't going to necessarily read some doctrinal statement, you know, here's the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy or something. Your skeptic aunt or uncle or employer isn't going to read that, but they are going to read your life. And it's vitally important. I would say, though, with one nuance, um, the fact that Christians don't perfectly live out their faith doesn't change what Jesus did. And so I always want to hold those things somewhat in uh, in separate categories. It's vitally important how we live. Um, but for anyone examining Christianity, I would encourage them to always look at our founder and what he taught and how he lived. Today, as people, you know, go about doing whatever it is they're going to do, Dan, you know, some people are going to uh, be out, you know, running errands. Others are going to be doing homeschool stuff with kids, even if those kids are, you know, enrolled in public school or other schools that are meeting remotely. Some people are going to the doctor. They're dealing with, uh, you know, they're dealing with all kinds of things today. And in the midst of all of it, we're also living in the context of a country that is 32 days away from a presidential election where we just learned this morning that the president and first lady uh, have tested positive for COVID and are in quarantine. Um, headlines are running rampant right now with um, words like uncertainty and chaos and leadership vacuum. And I'm just scrolling. And I guess um, maybe just speak into the moment here for for a moment. Um, how How ought we respond as people of faith when... When we do get news that is um, hard to hear, um, but but then other people receive it as welcome, and it's about something bad that's happened to someone else. Like I'm the this what's going on right now in the culture in terms of the reactions and responses to mm -hmm. the president's and first lady's diagnosis is heartbreaking. As uncivil as we are when we talk with one another, what's happening now is just downright heartbreaking. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my, my encouragement to all of us is to make sure, you know, so many people are looking to social media and YouTube to, to get their news, to inform their opinions. And so the way we talk about these things as Christians matters. People mm -hmm. are watching and listening. There was an article that I'll post a link to that, you know, essentially this Christian leader said, hey, we are losing our witness. Like we need to wake up and remember that we're called to, above all things, put on Christ and to demonstrate his character. And so my encouragement to, to Christians listening today is before you type that, that social media update, before you like that Facebook story, which everybody will see in the news feed, ask the question, is this a reflection of the love of God? Things are messy. Life is hard. We have strong opinions about all these issues. But let's remember that the strongest apologetic is the love of Christ. Let's model that. 
let, let our first instinct, instinctive reaction to these news stories be, how is this an opportunity for me to model the love of Christ? And so other people don't deserve grace less than you, um, and they don't, and you don't need it less than they do. And so let's model that kind of posture. And that would be my encouragement for all of us today, including myself. Okay. And one final question before we let you go. Uh, did you even know that this past week ending tomorrow was banned book week? Yes, because I have a library right down the street, like half a block away, and I follow them on Twitter. And so they've been like, you know, featuring quotes and stuff from banned books. Weird. The whole thing is weird. It's a made up thing. Um, but I do think it gives us the opportunity maybe to talk about, um, you know, w- times and places in which the Bible has been banned or times and places in which um, convictional Christians and their writings have been have been banned. Um, the banned books that uh, that your public library is concerned about uh, this year are all on a theme. It's LGBTQ. Um, I'm not recommending you read any of the featured LGBTQ stories in this week's uh, banned book celebration. Um, by the way, these books are not banned. They are just, um, this is just an opportunity for people to ha- make up an event that um, entices young children into reading things um, that uh, that are not healthy. Um, anyway, there you go. All well, right, uh, there, Dan DeWitt. I did, I did not realize it was made up. So, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. this is it's a good example. It's just a completely made up thing. Yeah. We're getting um, the real news here this morning. Subway having five times the legal limit of sugar in their bread, not made up. So sad. Not made okay. up. <laughs> All right. Hey, Dan DeWitt, thanks again. Uh, you guys need to visit theolatte.com. You can grab the Surrendered Reason Isn't Unreasonable article and be looking for the Weekend Worldview Reader. Dan, as always, thanks so much. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, Banned Book Week. Uh, I think that you should go, if you've got an opportunity, and visit your public library and see if Banned Book Week is being, quote-unquote, celebrated there, what books are on the, quote-unquote, banned book table. The theme this year is LGBTQ stories. Um, I'm not even going to read you the headlines because, man, it's troubling. Just thought I want to make you aware of that. And then, yes, an Irish court has ruled Subway bread has five times the legal limit of sugar by weight. I don't know. We're going to have to check more into that. I got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.